morning, okay. good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Lisa Howarth, author of the novel The Summerlings, to be published on August 6th. Lisa is also the co-founder of Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, one of our great independent bookstores. Lisa, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> welcome to Inside the Office at Square Books, <laughs> where I'm speaking to you from. <laughs> well, bef- before we get to the novel, I, I want to talk about Square Books for a minute and about independent bookstores. How, how did you come, you and your husband, come to found a bookstore in Oxford, Mississippi? Oh, gosh. That's a, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Um, <laughs> I came down here. I was a Faulkner. I was obsessed with Faulkner since high school. I had an excellent teacher, and I came down here not knowing anybody and almost immediately met Richard. And his family had always, who lived in Oxford for quite a long time, had always lamented the fact that there was no um, strong bookstore anywhere near. Uh, Memphis would be the closest place, which is 80 miles away. So it was kind of his dream, and um, I uh, went to Ole Miss, and then I went off to Chapel Hill, by the way, oh, yeah. to get a library degree, where I uh, I worked in um, the Rare Books Room, which was down in the bowels of Wilson Library, which was hog heaven, and I knew I wanted to do something in books, but I also knew that if we started a bookstore, somebody would have to be paying the bills and needed a, you know, a good good job. So uh, we came back here. I was a librarian at the um, University of Mississippi for a while, and while well, Richard got the bookstore started in 1979. And I worked there for a while as we got off the ground, but um, pretty quickly uh, we were on our feet and started hiring great staff, uh, which we still have. We have a remarkable staff. And I, I personally, I want to make it clear, I can't claim a lot of credit for what goes on up here. Um, everything is very well run, and we've got brilliant people. As you know, uh, probably from, you've probably dealt with a few, maybe. And um, I don't do much except I edit and write for the newsletter, but my main responsibility is to entertain the tons of writers who come here for events. Uh, so that's kind of my job here. But um, that, that's not a bad I'm job to have. I, I, I get no, to... it, it's kind of wonderful. <laughs> Most of the time, not all the time. Yeah, yeah. I get to do some of that um, at, at Bookmarks. We have our book festival coming up soon, and my wife and I have the the authors for dinner at our house after the festival. And yeah, it's lovely to see. Oh, cool. Uh, have a chance to just you know be with your with your peers. You don't. We don't get to. We don't get to interact as peers a lot as authors. So, so um, being able to go to events at stores and festivals and things is is important to us. I remember my publisher telling me one time that independent bookstores sell six percent of the books that are sold in the United States, and I kind of got depressed by that. And then she said, "But they have a 
their influence on the market on, on, and on what books become popular is, is much out of proportion to that percentage. Why do you think that right. is? Right. Well, I think that um, there are a lot of book people out there who want actual books and who um, love being in a good bookstore where there's a huge range of books and, most importantly, they're knowledgeable people there to help you and guide you with your choices or your orders or whatever. And I think that just makes a huge difference, I think, and is the, um, the main thing indies have to offer. Yeah. And um, you've got me on statistics. I couldn't <laughs> couldn't go there, but um, <laughs> Richard could. I can call him in here if he really wants them. But um, I think that's the main thing. Is just that it's uh, it's a shopping experience, and it's also an intellectual experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's nothing like browsing a shelf full of great books. Not necessarily just. Uh, popular or best-selling books, right. and yeah. um, that's what we have to offer. You, you're an author and also a bookseller. What do you What do you think is the ideal relationship between us as authors and and especially independent booksellers? Wow, let's see. Um, well, you're you know obviously you're kindred spirits, and booksellers nothing makes them happier than being able to hand-sell a really good book that they love or that they think that a particular customer will love. Uh, you get to know, in indies, you get to know your customers pretty well, especially in a small town like Oxford. I mean, of course, um, making money also makes us happy, <laughs> but uh, I think it's really the experience of helping writers, especially those who are just getting started, um, you know, get out there and spreading the word. It's just deeply satisfying and, um, you know, it really enriches our whole experience. So, I, and we can say from the other side that having, having visited a lot of independent bookstores as an author, and especially when my first novel came out and it was, you know, it was new to me and I was new to readers, you know, to walk into a bookstore and to have total strangers waiting to hear you talk about your book and, and buy a copy. Um, it, it sort of makes you feel like you're not just working in a, in a void. And so that those relationships with those, with those booksellers have become um, really special to me as an author. Yeah. It, it's a thrill. You know, the times, even in an airport bookshop, book when I've gone in and I see my book there, it's just sort of, you know, a little jolt of electricity and, yeah. and I can't help but speak to, the person at the counter who's not necessarily a book person, but thank them for having my book and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's really a thrill. So yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So let's turn to the Summerlings. Um, as the title suggests, I, I found this a perfect novel to read during the summer. It's a lot more than just a summer read, but it has kids and yards and thank bikes you. and picnics and front porches and like all the things that those of us who grew up in the South in the 1970s associate with summer. Uh, you chose to set the novel in suburban Washington, D.C. I know that you grew up in Washington, but... Are there other reasons why that made this the perfect setting for this story? Um, yes. I mean, number one being the obvious, I really wanted to write a, a Washington novel. 
uh, I wanted to write something that was um, historical fiction. Um, I would say historical fiction light, maybe, in this case, but of course, historical fiction nonetheless. And I wanted to write about uh, a neighborhood like the one that I grew up in, which was Chevy Chase, right across the D.C. line, Chevy Chase Circle. And it never occurred to me till I was, you know, a, an adult that that was, you know, what an unusual neighborhood we had. Uh, mm-hmm. It was full of, um, you know, possible CIA operatives <laughs> and Austrians, Austrian Jews who'd fled after the Anschluss, um, Nazi Dutch military uh general who was a Nazi sympathizer, which was crazy, Latin American diplomats, um, Russians or Ukrainians, all kinds of people. I mean, it was just as far as we knew as kids, it was just our hood, you know? But um, obviously it was not typical of most of America. And I, you know, I wanted to capture that and I wanted to... I thought it'd be fun for um, baby boomer age people to recall those things, and also maybe um, illuminating for younger readers who didn't really know much about the 50s and what that was like. This is specifically 1959. Um, And I really, there were other things going on. I wanted to, I really find it fun to talk about um, the pop culture of the 50s, specifically particularly films and music and kids' games, um, these sort of iconic things that there's probably a whole, at least a couple of generations who don't even really get all that. And I was also, I've got two grandchildren now in recent years, and I've been thinking a lot about how different the lives of children are now from the way they were when I was a kid. And, um, you know, what that might mean, and is that better or worse, whatever, but it's, it's really fascinating to me, because um, we had all the freedom in the world, and we had yeah. no yeah. devices. We had magnets, and we had, you know, <laughs> a deck of cards, you know, we just had, we had to make do, and you'd leave the house in the morning, and maybe you'd come back for lunch, and you'd had to come back for dinner, and then you'd be back out again, at least in the summer. And nobody was really paying that much attention. It was a much more innocent, um, fun time for kids, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. So that was... uh, You you tell the novel in what I think of as being the retrospective first person, so it's told from the point of view of a a child narrator looking, but but an adult looking back. And that always reminds me of To Kill a Mockingbird. do you think there's something particularly southern about that method of storytelling, or why did you why did you choose to to put it in that sort of mode? Wow, that's a good question. Um, of course, you can't write a book with children in it without thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's sort of the iconic book about kids dealing with serious issues um, in an adult world. Uh, I started out writing it with much more of the narrator's life back and forth, reflecting on the 50s and then going back to his own life. And I decided, which was somewhere in the late 80s, and I I dropped that for 
I don't know, I got so wrapped up in the kids that I dropped that. Um, I'm not exactly sure why I did that. I just find kids to be endlessly fascinating, mm-hmm. and of course they get away with murder, and um, and they're so funny. They have no filters, or very few, and they also possess a kind of um, understanding of the truth of things, where adults have let so many other things color their their um, perceptions about the world. And I, I don't know, I got really, just got really into that. If that's an answer to that question. No, it is. And I, I don't want to harp too much on this idea of the Summerlings as a Southern novel, because I think it's a lot more than that. Um, but oh, you, yeah, but, the Southern thing. I left that out. <laughs> um, well, you, I mean, you populate the novel with these child protagonists. You set it in this this very, the most Southern of seasons, I think, of the summer. And then as soon as I read your title, I immediately right. thought of that opening line of Carson McCullers' Member of the Wedding it happened that green and crazy yeah. summer when Frankie was twelve years old. Um, do you do you see yourself sort of in that Carson McCullers Harper Lee kind of kind of mode as you were working on this? Um, I did, but not consciously. I mean, mm-hmm. I really I try not to go back and look at other books that might be similar because I don't want to be trapped by any of that. But um, yeah, of course. Um, I'm I'm not sure about the southern thing, but certainly the um, the physical world uh, yeah, yeah. of the South, and and I include Washington in that. At least Washington in the fifties was very southern. Um, so yeah. we've been we've been teasing our listeners because you and I have read this novel and know a lot more about it than they do. To, you you've told us about the the setting and the sort of neighborhood, but tell us the basic. The, the, I don't not give things away, but the basic setup of the Summerlings. The basic setup is <laughs> this is a man looking back on a particular particularly cataclysmic summer in 1959 that was a um, a life-changing coming-of-age experience for him and his friends and he's relating that and um, so it's basically focused on him John the narrator and his two friends, Ivan and Max, a Latin American diplomat child, and their activities. They're, lots of times they're doing, you know, crazy kid stuff and saying ridiculous, crazy kid things and trying to sort out basically what the hell's going on in the world. Yeah. It was Cold War. Their neighborhood has been deeply affected by that, by World War II. And they hear things and they aren't sure what the truth is, um, and they perceive things about adults, and they don't know what exactly is going on there. So it's sort of an examination of their lives and their perceptions about things. And um, they're dealing with these, they're dealing with some happy things, but they're also dealing with family tragedies and family dysfunction, not unusual for many families. And but they've also got this big Cold War political cloud over things that uh, they're afraid. I mean, I can remember, you know, I was this age in 1959, and I can remember how deeply afraid we were of the atomic bomb. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was just 
it was kind of horrifying, especially living in Washington where you did the the um, the civil defense drills. Although we even at eight years old, we knew <laughs> if there's a war. Washington's going to be the first place to be obliterated. Right. There's no point in even practicing all of that. So it was, um, kids were, kids had to deal with things that they don't necessarily have to deal with today. I mean, there are plenty more things, scary things they deal with today, of course, but um, it was a different, a different thing, and I found it really fascinating to um, investigate how I thought these kids would deal with those things and how they would negotiate their lives and deal with the um, the weird, as they saw it, things that adults did. I, I think there's a thing, a quote on the second page that I wrote down that kind of really gets at that, the different things that kids dealt with in 1959 versus today. And uh, John says, we didn't worry about things like mold back then. We worried about polio and radioactivity. And I... I mean, first of all, there's a huge underlying humor to that, but I think that really gets at um, this this idea that you know uh, we we think of that as a sort of golden good old days, and yet the threats were huge and, and dangerous. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. I mean, everybody knew two or three kids who wore braces or you know had some kind of polio uh, infected problems, um, and then there were. You know, the thalidomide scare was also horrific, and I can remember that Life magazine article first coming out about that, and that was horrifying to everybody. Um, you know, medi- there weren't the great medical advances that we had today, and everybody got all the diseases. Everybody got chicken pox and two kinds of measles and mumps and whooping cough, and um, you know, it was there was. Um, some scary stuff going yeah, on, yeah. and uh, of course it's different now. People didn't worry about um, child abductions, and yeah. uh, you know the, there was definitely child molestation, which I touch on in this, but um, is certainly not a theme. Um, those things are probably going on, but certainly not the way they seem to be today, or at yeah. least they were relatively unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you say something on the first. On the first, on the first page of the novel, you say something that I think reveals kind of an acknowledged uncertainty about childhood. And then I'm quoting here: "You say what my friends and I knew was a grab bag of information overheard, along with information we made up and told one another and accepted as fact." But then you add to that, not really so different from the grown-up world. Why? Why did you add that phrase? And how do you think that that? children and adults process the world differently, or do they process the world differently? Uh, yeah, I think they do process it differently. I mean, they don't have any choice. There, there are certain things they know they're not allowed to ask about or even know about, and um, that's a problem for kids. They, you know, they discuss things amongst themselves, and, of course, they love to tell lies, just like adults. And, um, you know, on the other hand, adults are gossiping all the time, and also telling lies that uh, may or may or may not be true. So, and this particular neighborhood is rife with neighborhood secrets. Some of them are of a political nature. Some of them are of a sexual nature. And these kids just barely know what's going on, especially sexually and certainly politically. And they, they just kind of have to create their own little 
world and go by their own little rules to a certain extent. And, of course, um, things happen, and um, <laughs> they may be tragic or unfortunate things, and the kids have no control over that at all. And uh, it's all an adult-dictated uh, situation, and they're powerless, but they also have an incredible resilience that I don't think adults have. That Since they have no choice but to kind of go with the flow, that's what they have to do, yeah. and they endure things that they have no power to correct or to... Um, they have no power to give themselves much comfort, so... But I love the fact that even though they they certainly in in the larger scheme of things they're they are powerless and yet compared to kids today these kids do some things where they they really kind of take charge they they decide to throw this party for the neighborhood there's some there's some other things I'm not going to say because the readers are going to have too much fun when they get to that part of the book um, but I, but I love that I love the sort of their sort of take charge attitude it's like it's it's like at times they don't even think about the fact that they're kids. It doesn't occur to them that, you know, I can't do this right. because I'm a kid. Well, a lot of the stuff they do, most of the things they do and the the bad trouble they get into on some occasions is um, it's very self-serving. I mean, yeah. these kids, they want to make their neighborhood a, um, a nicer place, like something they might see on Leave it to Beaver. Because they want to get in somebody's swimming pool, right. or they want to ride in somebody's cool Messerschmitt car, or, <laughs> you know, it's all about them. And um, so their motives are a little on the selfish side, but they, uh, they, there's, uh, they do, in their own ways, they want to help things. They le- that's one of the things they learn in the course of the novel, is um, to uh, have a heart and to use it and to help and um, and to appreciate people, adults, who are that way. Because yeah. not all the people in their lives are, um, are good influences or nurturing influences. There are a few, though, and they learn that. And I think, you know, that was imp- that's an important lesson for them. I want to give our readers just a sense of some of the humor in this book. And one way that you... The create humor is by the use of what I would call historical irony, I guess. So you have one character speaking in 1959. He's speaking about the Russians, and I've edited this slightly in case we have family listeners. But he says something along the lines of the very idea of them interfering with our elections. Right. Uh, and later on, there's a line where he says that the Russians lie to their own people, which is something we'd never do in America. Um, can you talk about how you use historical irony to, to create humor in the novel? Um, yeah, I, uh, as I began writing this, of course, all the political issues were there, and I knew that, but I didn't really intend to make these things um, overarching themes or big themes, but then the more I read and researched about uh, Cold War history, the more I thought, oh my God, the, you know, the resident resonance today is kind of incredible, and especially when I stumbled on the line that, or I created the line that you just had um, John's grandfather utter, uh, that Khrushchev (laughs) really did vow 
to interfere in the uh, Kennedy Nixon election, which was a very close election, yeah. and who knows what happened. The more I stumbled on those uh, bits of information, mostly gleaned from um, William Sapphire's writing, by the way, I I realized it was going to have to be a bigger um, um, theme in the book, and I really wanted to use it, and it was very useful. But it was just extraordinary to me how many especially the problems with Russia, uh, were still around 60 yeah. years later. And, um, you know, and, and one of the things I wanted to say was, look, these things happened then. It was a terrible time. We're still worrying about a lot of these things. But we did come through all of that. And even though right now we might feel like we're in a, just a horrible period in our history, we do get over. We do yeah. come yeah. through. And... Uh, so I hope, you know, maybe it offers people a little broader view of things and a little more perspective on what's going on now. Yeah, yeah. There's, I found there was this intense believability in the, the really just sort of matter-of-factness of the narrator's voice. And it's something almost, I'm not sure an adult narrator could get away with, it, the, the way John talks, and it, 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 I, I just loved it. But I'm curious, did the, did the voice... Once that was in your head, did that sort of lead the story and and lead the the action, or was it the other way around? Um, I had a definite, a pretty definite idea about the narrator. He was going to be a young man who was um, different in some ways, and I think those differences are apparent even when he's a child, his sexual confusion and things like that. And uh, I thought of him as somebody relating this story to, in a casual conversation or a casual atmosphere to another person or other people who um, might get it. And I also wanted him to appear to be a, um, not a kid, but somebody who still retained a lot of his kidness, that's a word, um, and, and, and his innocence yeah. in a lot of ways. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know what else I could say about yeah. that, but I definitely had him in mind as somebody you could easily see as being this child who had grown up and still had some of these confusions and, um, maybe some of the same mannerisms and, and he was, uh, you know, a peripheral person. I don't want to say what his deal was. Leave that for the reader to discover. Yeah. But um, he wasn't some, um, he definitely wasn't a Washington suit or anything like that. Right. So uh, I don't know. Um, so there are a lot of references to, to real historical events. And, but there's an there's a mm-hmm. event that for the kids is probably one of the most important things that happens in the book. And I honestly don't know if it's real or not. I'm going to let you tell me, but tell us about the spider plague and whether or not that was a real thing. (laughs) No, No, that was not a real thing. It's funny how many people, um, you know, my friends and family who read this say, did that, did that really happen? My brother's too young to remember those days. And I I totally made it up because uh, for a couple of reasons, I, Wanted to. I thought it'd be really fun to um, show the uh, 
the collecting obsessions that kids have. They're so mm-hmm. funny about that. And uh, my, I, one of my brothers in particular was just a fanatic about collecting stuff. And I also like to write about, um, whenever I can, about the natural world of a place or just the natural world in general, just the flora and fauna. Um, and I thought it would be really fun to create this uh, pirate vinegaroon. That's not a real thing. That's either. not a real spider. There okay. are vinegaroons, but not the pirate vinegaroon. And I, I just, I purely did it for my own entertainment, I guess you could say. But uh, it was really fun to, to make it happen. And I think it also had a kind of a, um, a democratic feel to it that not only were these suburbanites, you know, these comfortably situated suburbanites being affected by this, but all these other people um, in downtown Washington, down in the, you know, the inner city were also being affected by it. It was sort of a leveling, leveling the playing field experience that was driving everybody crazy from the CIA on down. So, um, and I just, I had fun with it. Is that a good enough reason? I mean, it is. And the other thing I loved about it is the (laughs) different ways that the children and adults respond to it. I mean, there's so what happens is there's just spiders everywhere, all different kinds of spiders. And the the adults respond in in the obvious way, let's get rid of these spiders out of our house or whatever. But they also, there's also this intimation that maybe the Russians are attacking us with spiders, you know, whereas the kids are like, cool, spiders, let's collect them. And I think that was just a great way to exactly. draw the differentiation between between the kids and the adults. Um, yeah, and of course the kids hope to um, maybe kind of go along with the Russian way of thinking, if the Russians actually did it. Let's use some of these spiders for our own nefarious right, purposes. Right, I'm not going right. to elaborate on what those are, but um, yeah, they were totally... Um, thinking about them differently from the adults. <laughs> yeah. And and I think to a certain extent that is reflective of sort of especially at that time period of kids and the natural world. I mean, to get back to this idea of their the level of freedom that they have. I remember reading that like in my father's generation the average child's radius of where he would be from his house was like 6 or 7 miles. And in my generation it was 2 or 3 miles and now it's like 50 feet. <laughs> um, I, I know. It's um, my grand grandchildren are in New York City and it's more like two inches. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just, um, of course, they have their own wonderful lives up there, things that they are able to do. But yeah, and of course, the six or seven miles that you speak of, that's what you were allowed or told. But of course, we were all over the place, yeah, yeah. way far away from, yeah. I mean, those are just those were the parameters, but we didn't hesitate to <laughs> to break them right. to bust through them all the time. Um, the, but yeah, it's it's so very different. The neighborhood that the the kids live in, centered on Connors Lane, is a place where even in 1959, it's not quite 15 years after the war, but the cars, the stories the scars, the effects of World War II are still felt very, very deeply. Um, how does the memory of the war shape this book and the characters and their relationships? Um, I think a lot of this is from my memories. We 
I mean, the war, it might, have been, might as well have been the Civil War, actually, in our historic understanding of things, that, you know, little more than a decade seemed like a century to us. Um, but there were lots of uh, war movies, people in the neighborhood. Um, well, I'm not going to tell you that because I might, I might read a little bit of that. Um, there were people who had been so deeply affected by the war in the neighborhood by one way or another, in one way or another. And, of course, as little kids, everybody wanted to play war. I mean, that's something you don't, I haven't seen, you know, with kids these days. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe they still do, but um, most kids that I know of, or lots of kids I know of, aren't even allowed to have play guns anymore. We all had them, tons of weapons. Yeah. And we'd reenact um, famous battle scenes that we heard about, or scenes from movies, Bridge on the, Over the River Cry, um, things like that. We were kind of obsessed with it, but we didn't really know intellectually a hell of a lot about it. But, um, you know, we knew veterans. We knew um, people who'd run away from Europe. We knew, we knew those things, and we knew that it had been, a, for our parents, had, had been a, a deeply threatening time. So, <laughs> but, of course, kids, you know, they're going to make it something fun to do play war well and you know that's what we did as you get as you get older you realize that you know 13 years 14 years is a long time for a kid it's generations for a kid but for an adult it's it's the snap of the fingers you know it's it's yesterday um would you would you read us a little excerpt from the novel yeah this is a little passage about it's exactly what we were just talking about one of the boys the three boys projects they had several that summer um, and this one is about uh, regarding reunification of their hood because there were <laughs> so many neighbors at odds and mistrustful of, of one another. And the Bricky, who I mention here, is John's grandfather, who may or may not be a CIA operative. Even though World War II had been over for more than a decade, there was still a collective war hangover among the people on Connors Lane, maybe because so many of our neighbors had been affected by it in one way or another. Some had run away from Europe, Austrian Jews, ironically, a Dutch Nazi sympathizer. Some had fought, like Mr. Shreve, who had lost a leg, and Mr. Allgood's brother had died at Utah Beach. Bricky had been in the Army, too, though not in combat. He had specialized in linguistics and spent time in England and Latin America. There must have been a point in the early 50s, around the time we boys were born, when everyone was relieved that the war was over and optimistic about peace. But things had ratcheted up again with the Soviet Union humiliating us in the space race, having spy rings that cracked the Manhattan Project. And now they had the bomb. Khrushchev had already vowed, we will bury you. And earlier that summer, visiting Moscow, Nixon had angrily poked Khrushchev in the chest. In retaliation, Khrushchev had said he was going to do everything he could to help defeat Nixon in the 1960 election, which infuriated Bricky. The very GD idea of those B words interfering (laughs) in our elections. And of course, right after Christmas, there'd been the Cuban Revolution, Castro bringing communism within 90 miles of the U.S., There was a lot of fear in America. Everyone believed that there was a very good chance that the world would soon blow up. 
At school, we practice three scary civil defense drills for different attack scenarios, but even we boys knew that Washington would be the first place annihilated and nobody would survive. So the Cold War caused our neighborhood to be nervous and suspicious of one another. Who you were, where you had been, and what you had done during, the war, during World War II set boundaries. And for Ivan and Max and me, this meant things often got in the way of our having fun. I think that's that long enough. Yeah, I think that's great. Long. I think, I mean, I think what that that okay. really gets at the, um, you know, what it was like for for kids in the Cold War. That's, you know, you talked about acting out battles and things that they saw on TV, and yet, but you know, the Cold War is this whole different thing, and it's just kind of this yeah, threat exactly. that's hanging there that they don't really understand. Talking about the theme of not understanding things um uh, you know another rich seam that i think you tap into uh, in the shall we say the child narrator mind um is this idea of a child misunderstanding the adult even though the reader is going to have know a little bit more about what's going on and i don't think it's quite the same as an unreliable narrator but it leads to comments like this is another one of my favorite lines dima used a lot of expressions with religious words in them but we didn't go to church I suppose that's why she said them to make up for it. Um, so this, you know, and of course the reader sees that in a completely different, different light. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you you use that kind of humor with the child narrator, but but tread that line of not making the narrator look foolish um, through through his ignorance. I don't know. I like to think it's one of my specialties. I really love writing dialogue, mm. and I work really hard at it to make it realistic and um, be- believable. And I can't stand to write anything much that doesn't have humor in it. So I'm trying to inject humor in just about everything. Um, there is a lot of tragedy in here, but... Uh, you know, humor is a way out for a lot of people, and certainly for kids, it, it's a, a lifesaver, making things funny or ridiculous. Um, but as for, he's a very, the narrator in a way is a, a, a very sarcastic, snarky guy. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a mean way, but edgy, I guess is a better word. And uh, he, he understands he still has. A, he's not like I said before. He's not quite a serious grown-up, um, and he still understands kids and kid speak and their understanding of things. And uh, I think he's he's good at adult irony. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> he's good at bringing. Yeah, he's bringing out. He's good at bringing out the sort of pitiful quality that children have of not getting adult irony, um, but it's also funny. I don't know. That's a tough one. I, yeah. I'm not sure I answered that very well. Well, I mean, certainly if if your goal was to, to bring humor to the book, job done. I mean, I, I thought it, it's it's – People have asked me about this book. I said, "Well, you know, there's there's bad things that happen, and you know, it's the Cold War, and there's all this darkness, and it's hilarious, you know." And and that I think that's one of the things that people are going to like about that is that it has that balance between the humor and and these other you know issues that we've been talking about. Um, it's a a real goal with me that the humor and uh, and as I say, a way 
for characters to deal, especially children, deal with bad things that happen. I mean, humor will get you out of a lot of dark places. Mm -hmm. And uh, those kids kind of rely on that. Um, And I rely on it. And it's life. What I wanted was life. It's got its good moments and its terrible moments. And um, if you can use humor, it helps. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little bit of insight into you and your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. Uh, I'm ready. This sounds like Jeopardy. A little bit, yeah. No prizes, though. What word do you love to work into your writing? I I love the word nub which is a good all-purpose word, yeah. <laughs> which seems very trivial, but you can use it in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Writing this book, Morons, was really important yeah. because yeah. we constantly were talking about who was a moron. Yeah. So maybe morons for this book. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I find a lot of um, millennial work to have words in in their writing that are you see them over and over again and just um, yeah. cliche, become cliches to me. So, Where's your favorite place to write? My favorite place to write is in my friend's apartment in New York. Um, he's rarely there and he very generously lets me hunker down in there mm-hmm. and write and I've used it that apartment so many times and it's good to it helps me be at a remove from uh, the everyday um, you know dishwashing, making the bed (laughs) feeding the cats all that crap so it's my favorite place where could you never write? I could never write in my own house when my children were there growing up yeah To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I don't know. I, I like, it's not exactly, it's punctuation more than grammar, but I really like, I like italics a lot. Uh-huh. My editor would say too much. Um, I like um, ellipses yeah, yeah. too much. Uh, I would say those two those two things. I ignore them all the time, but then yep. you get your editor gets you and <laughs> hammers on you to fix it. So, <laughs> What was the first book you remember reading? We had a series of books, a series of books called The, the Little Book House, I think they were called. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were graduated from very elementary up to, you know, sometime in elementary school, maybe. And I was very taken with those. Yeah, I remember those very vividly. Yeah, I don't even yeah. know if they have those anymore. I've, I've seen them in... Um, I you used remember to, them? Well, I used to have an antiquarian bookstore, and we, we'd specialize in children's books, and we used to sell that series all the time. I don't think they print them anymore, but I know exactly the books you're talking about. What are you reading now? Oh, wow. I'm just, I've am just i been on a tear since I'm you know waiting for this book to come out and not really doing much else. Um, I just read a wonderful new book called Prince of Monkeys, I'm not going to embarrass myself of by giving trying to pronounce the Nigerian writer's name, but it's said in Lagos, this 
uh, political strife of the 80s and 90s and has, it's just really wonderful and um, full of action and has a cameo part for the late, great uh, political activist Fela Kuti and world beat musician. It's really wonderful. Uh, What book would you like to have written? It's going to be a cheesy answer. But I'm going to say Faulkner's Sound and the Fury. I don't think that's cheesy at all. Um, it's, well, I mean, Faulkner just, I can't tell you how much he meant to me before I came. I mean, mm-hmm. he's the reason I came here to Oxford. He's the reason I've lived here for 45 years, really. And uh, that book literally changed my life. Yeah. And yeah. Um, So I would have to say that. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I would really like to write a really good book about the 60s. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That they were um, passing my book along to their children or their parents. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, including this year's festival, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Lisa Howarth, whose novel The Summerlings will be published on August 6th. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Charlie, thank you. I enjoyed it. Inside the Writer Studio generally posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. Over the next couple of months, we'll be featuring authors appearing at the 15th Annual Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors here in Winston-Salem on September 5th through 8th. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.